So welcome everybody. This is a special focus meeting of Overeaters Anonymous that addresses the needs of those who have lost or need to lose £100 or more. We found we can identify more closely with those whose physical manifestation of the disease is much like our own. The meeting, however, is open to anybody who wants to stop eating compulsively. Um, we just ask you respect our special focus. So today I am absolutely delighted to welcome Don C. Don grew up in the uh, mountain state of West Virginia. He now lives in the state of Connecticut, which uh, for all you European lot is about two hours north of New York City. His first meeting was January the 26th, 1982, which by my count, that's 40 years ago. That's wonderful in the state of North Carolina. So I am going to hand it over now to Don to tell you his experience, strength and hope. Thanks, Don. Thanks, Rita. Hey, thanks for doing all my history there. You saved me a lot of time. Um, Anyway, my name is Don, compulsive eater and food addict from Connecticut in the U.S., as Rita said. I've been in OA 40 years and 10 months, but but who's counting? Uh, 38 years abstinent, maintaining about 180 to 190 pound weight loss now for more than three decades. In OA, in 1982, when I came in, OA saved my life, literally saved my life by showing me how to change my life. In my shares, I like to focus on the, the solution, not the problem. So you're not going to hear a lot of a big food log from me today. Uh, I'm going to skip a lot of the what I was like and then talk about how I found freedom from the disease that almost killed me and how I now hold on to that freedom. Uh, you can read more of what I was like in my, in, in my story in the Overeaters Anonymous uh, third edition book. It's called Freedom Isn't Free. You'll understand my focus on that title, Freedom Isn't Free, by the time I finish today. You know, because from, from my perspective, God doesn't magically change me. He gives me the courage to take the actions that change me. If there's time, I'll, I'll end uh, today with a, a little about my current situation, what I call phase four of my life. And that's about the, unfortunately, the unfixable chronic pain and disability uh, that I have now that makes me look like a, a bent over old man. Oh, wait, I am a bent over old man, right? Uh, that's reality. I'm about to be 82 in a couple of weeks. So I am a bent old old man with lots of back problems. What that bent over old man needs to do, though, is to work his problem, his program, even harder today than he did in the early years. I worked pretty hard in the early years but I've had to work even harder these last three or so years. OA saved my life, and it gave me a life. It's still showing me how to have a loving and useful life, no matter the physical challenges that I have in my life now. My life is still today, as I said many, many years ago, in that based upon the words of Dr. Bob, love and service, love and service, and all the various implications of those two words. That's that's the basis of my life. So a little history. I come from a coal mining area in Appalachia that I can remember wanting to escape from as early as fourth or fifth grade in grade school. I finally did escape at age 17. Now over the last 65 years, oh my God, 65 years, I've spent four in Kentucky about 40 in New York, several years each in New Hampshire and Pennsylvania. And for the last five years, we've been in Connecticut. 
Along the way, I've visited about 30 countries. I was an only child, a mentally ill, smothering mother, and a workaholic father. No question what I got from my mother. Uh, fear, a feeling of being somehow different from others. It was always us versus them. Feelings of less than, not good enough, never quite fitting in, feeling like I was always on the outside looking in. What did I get from my dad? Fierce self-sufficiency. Uh, you know, real men don't ask for help. Also, real men don't show feelings. Well, on the positive side, I got a work ethic from my father. He implanted by example the idea that nothing comes from nothing. In other words, there is no free lunch. So he had me working from about the seventh grade on. Fear, doubt, and insecurity dominated my life as a child. When I came to the program at age 41, I was still the same inwardly despite what would appear to an outsider as someone who exemplified the American dream, someone who progressed from nothing to relative affluence through education and hard work. Uh, high functioning on the outside because I mostly followed the, this is what you're supposed to do script, even though it never aligned with my inner life. This inside outside disparity continued until I began to bring the two together through the rebuilding process of the 12 steps, particularly in, in step five, when I was honest with another human being for the first time in 41 years of my life. That's when the wall began to come down. I was not an obese child per se, though overweight, uh, but the large, I was always the largest kid in my small grade school. That would, it, it was sixth grades, and I was always the largest kid in the school. Uh, in high school, I played sports, three different sports, and I kept my weight in check. Uh, it wasn't until my early 20s that when life got really hard, that the food began to gradually take over, all unconsciously. I had no idea that I was using food as a drug for comfort, no idea. But the up and down weight cycle continued through my 20s and my 30s eventually taking me to the high 300s, very close to 400 pounds. At some point, I crossed the line from plain old emotional leader to food addict, probably in my early 30s. While I might have had some choices before that, if I'd gotten some help along the way, I now was willpowerless to stop the physiological reaction in my body once I had that first bite of my alcoholic foods. Uh, I now understand the, the dopamine feel-good neurotransmitter that kicks in with sugars and uh, exactly the same part of the brain as alcohol and cocaine and amphetamines and nicotine and other drugs. But I didn't know anything of, uh, at that point. Life got worse and worse on the inside through my 30s until I concluded I was totally trapped and could find no reason for continuing to live. So 30 days before I accidentally found my way into an OA meeting, I climbed on a bridge over the Hudson River in New York at 3 a.m. in the morning. I had written my note. I had made the preparations to try to ease the pain for my spouse and my two kids who were teenagers at the time. I didn't jump 
but I don't remember coming down from the bridge. But that's a whole separate story, not for today. 30 days later, I entered a rehab in North Carolina on medical leave from my employer. I thought it was just a plain old fat farm where I was going to be able to lose some weight, but it turned out to be a 12-step based program. I had no idea. So they sent me to my first OA meeting on January 26, 1982. Ten women and me. I had no clue what the hell was going on. After the meeting, I got up the courage to go up to the oldest woman in the room. Now, I was 41. She probably was maybe 60. So that was really, really old at that time. You know, now everything is relative. I went up to the oldest woman in the room and I asked a question. I said, I don't really understand. You mentioned the word abstinence several times during the meeting. What the hell does sex have to do with losing weight? She laughed. And then I heard for the first time what I've heard 10,000 times since. Keep coming back. Keep coming back. So when I left that rehab with a 12-hour drive back home, the last thing they said to me was, get to an OA meeting tomorrow and keep going until you really want to keep going. Because it's there that you'll learn how to make a better life for yourself and stay free of this food obsession that you have. So I did. And here I still am, 40 years later. I came grossly obese, suicidal, and an atheist. I'm none of those things anymore. So a physical, emotional, and spiritual disease requires a physical, emotional, and spiritual solution. In simpler words, I had to find a new way of eating and a new way of thinking and a new way of believing. I had to reinvent myself. I needed a brain rewiring, basically. You know, somebody has said extraordinary problems require extraordinary solutions. And the OA solution for me was an extraordinary solution, a total makeover. Changing attitudes, beliefs, ideas, values, and behaviors is not, not easy. But the program gave me the process to make those changes through the steps, 12 steps and tools. There was only seven at that point when I came in. You know, if I'm willing to do the work, freedom comes. No magic, just actions and more actions. Thousands and thousands of actions before me have proven that it worked. Thousands and thousands of people before me have proven uh, that this works. Uh, they were my higher power, of course, uh, in the program. So I'm going to focus on my experience with the 12-step recovery process today. Note I said my experience. Uh, there's no one right way of working the steps except to take them in order. That's the only thing I would say. You must take them in order. They build upon each other. They're that pyramid, you know, that the book talks about to which we will uh, ex uh, go into freedom. So all, all of these steps from me, from my perspective, are ultimately about ego reduction. Um, so I'm not selling anything. Your process is up to you. While my first 10 years were Big Book and AA 12 and 12, because that's all that existed then, I've used the Big Book in both 12 and 12s the last 30 years or so in all of my step retreats and step studies and step sponsoring. So we're going to talk about the steps and run through the steps. Uh, in step one, I put down the food. I had to detox from my addictive foods. 
so that I could objectively examine my life since food was the symptom, not the ultimate problem. I accepted I had an incurable but arrestable disease over which willpower was useless and that I could never treat food like a normal eater, ever. I argued vehemently at first. I was fortunate. I needed a tough love sponsor, and I had a hard-ass tough love sponsor in the beginning, 16 years sober in AA, couldn't, and then picked up the food, couldn't stop eating. So I met him in OA, but he knew the big book frontwards and backwards, and, and he, he was just what I needed. So he was tough on me. I argued, and he just said, you come here to argue, or you come here to get well? I always thought it was a trick question. So I said, oh, shit, okay. All right, what do you want me to do? Um, how could anyone be addicted to food, I argued. Uh, it turns out there were, it wasn't addicted to food in general. It was certain foods, certain foods that I was addicted to. And then it turns out I was also addicted to overeating. In other words, for me, sugar and refined carbs could set up the craving, the same as overeating itself. Makes no sense, but overeating itself set up a craving for more and more and more until I was sick or couldn't eat anymore. So ultimately, I came to accept the reality of the addiction cycle talked about in the doctor's opinion, you know, with the mental obsession and physical compulsion, and accept, and this is the important thing, that my brain was in fact different than a normal eater's and would always be physiologically different. So in Dr. Silkworth's time, in the doctor's opinion, this was all conjecture. Now, of course, the science exists. Uh, it's there very clearly. Now, certain foods for me, sugars and refined carbs, uh, activate that dopamine pathway, same brain area affected by alcohol and cocaine, et cetera. It's the pleasure center. One bite or one drink and an irresistible urge for more kicks in. Therefore, the solution is don't eat those poison foods. Okay, don't eat those alcoholic foods. Fine. Now, where do I get the power to do that? So I, this whole thing led me to accepting that the food was not the real problem. I had to do some other things. Uh, I had to change the thinking that led to the feelings that led to the food obsession that leads to the first bite that leads to the out of control behaviors. There's the cycle. So that's what the 12 steps and the nine tools do and did for me. Um, they showed me how to change the thinking so that I wouldn't come to the feelings that led to the obsession because I have the disease that led to the first bite that led into the depths of hell. Um, so. I eventually uh, adopted an eating plan for me that left, took out all the refined carbs and sugars. Uh, I also needed structure. Uh, you know, normal eaters kind of eat spontaneously when they're when they want to eat, they eat. When they don't want to eat, when they're full, they stop. None of those mechanisms seemed to work for me. So I needed structure, and so I went to three meals a day, weight and measure, no sugar, refined carbs. That was 40 years ago. That's exactly the same plan I now still follow. Three meals a day, no sugar, no refined carbs. I still weigh and measure. Started weighing and measure a few, weighing and measuring a few years ago. I went for a while without having to do it. Now I need to do it again. Step two, from seeing and hearing recovery in the OA rooms, I gained the hope that kept me coming back. If there had been no recovery in the rooms where I was, I wouldn't have come back. 
because there had been no credibility. Remember that newcomers make judgments and whether or not they have hope is going to be on what they judge us to be. I was an atheist. Uh, I also didn't care for that, I, that God idea suggested to in the, in the second step. Uh, but in retrospect, I can see the hope that powered me forward in the steps was the recovery in the rooms. The program and the people were a power greater than myself. I didn't know that at the time. I didn't understand that, but something kept me here. In step three, I continued to work in the program. Um, in other words, the rest of the steps. That was the contract that I signed in the third step. Surrender for me wasn't giving up or giving everything to God. It was deciding to cooperate with a whole new set of ideas. And that meant the new set of ideas that were not mine, and they're called the rest of the steps, four through 12, committing to, to the rest of the steps. Metaphorically speaking, it's a little bit like I admitted myself to the OA hospital, and I said, okay, what do I do? I'll follow directions. I was told to work the rest of the steps and use all the tools. There were seven in those days. And trust the process. I didn't need to understand it, Charlie said. You don't need to understand it, Don. Just trust it and take the actions. And I wanted to argue. He said, Don, you come here to get well? Did you come here to, to argue? I said, okay, okay. And I went on. And then the real action began, four, five, six, and seven. I grouped those all together and, and talk about the changes. And this is really the guts of uh, the getting well that I want to talk about here today. In these change steps, I began rebuilding myself, rewiring my brain, if you like. A major personality change. Um, I identified the dysfunctional thinking and the attitudes in step four that led me to begin using food as a drug. Uh, I had no idea that I was using food like an alcoholic uses alcohol, but I was. In step five, in talking with a person experienced in recovery, I basically valid, validated the stuff and clarified the stuff I had found in, in step four that I had written down. I came out of step five with three lists. One was my strong points. And at that point, it didn't seem like there were very many, but there were some. And my shortcomings was a long list. Uh, which sponsors helped me with, and a tentative list of people I might need to make amends to later on in steps nine. So step, step six and seven were where the action happened for me. Six and seven were simply identifying with lots of help from sponsor and sponsors, identifying the antidotes to all the shortcomings, the solutions the new ways of thinking and dealing with life, uh, creating a new me. Now my job was to begin practicing living in those new ways of thinking and acting. Yes, I was asking a higher power, as I understood a higher power at this point, to help give me the courage to do this, but ultimately it was me that had to work on the changes. I learned that with higher powers help, I act my way into right thinking, not think my way into right acting. Just as I learn to swim by swimming and learn everything else by doing it, here in the sixth and seventh step, I had to learn new ways by practicing doing the new ways. No magic wand was going to touch me on the head and change me. I had to take the action. Now, I want to give you several examples of the personality transformation that I talked about. 
here in four, five, six, and seven. Uh, not all these were instant. I, I wish there was quick, you know, this is it, everything has changed, but it takes time. These things takes time. So some of these things are gradual, some are, are pretty quick, but this is the essence of my recovery then and now. These are the ways that I've learned to live that keep me free from this freaking killer disease. So I, I've got 15 examples here in, the, in my notes. Um, one, I face and deal with life today rather than blaming and eating. I blamed everybody under the sun when I came in. I was Mr. Poor me, poor me, poor me, poor me a drink, you know, victim. I blamed everybody, wife, spouse, kids, school, boss, employer, society, my culture. It was all their fault until I hit this tough love sponsor who said, Don, it's time to take off the pity hat and grow up. You're 41 years old now. You have to take responsibility for yourself. So that's what I learned to do. I learned to take responsibility. No more blaming, no more self-pity, no more victim. Um, I still do a gratitude list every morning today to help keep me in the right frame of mind for the day. You know, I, I moved from hopelessness to hope. When I was on that bridge, it was all hopelessness. Eventually I moved, it wasn't overnight, but eventually I moved to hope. And I moved from a reactive life, just reacting to everything, to a proactive life. Guess what? I'm in charge of what I do. I just don't sit around and wait for things to happen. Uh, second example, I've moved from thinking self-sufficiency. Remember my father? From thinking self-sufficiency is man's highest goal to being willing to ask for help to accepting that I, in fact, need help, that no man is an island or a woman. It's three, I work hard on staying out of self-centeredness and controlling. I've stopped what I used to call my mental master planning for the world. I was in my brain imposing shoulds and oughts on the world. This is the way this should go. This is what they should do. This is the situation that should be here. This thinking set me up to always be frustrated because the people and the situations didn't go the way I thought they should go. In other words, my way. They're not behaving. The president isn't behaving. The prime minister isn't behaving the way I think he should. Blah, blah, blah. So guess who was always frustrated? Me. This is nonsense. I had to let go of that. And that was a, a major shift. Four, I've gradually let go of the selfishness that was there. Uh, there's been a gradual shift, paradigm shift. This was not overnight, but a gradual shift from a how do I get what I want attitude to a how can I be useful. Remember I said love and service? That's all about how can I be useful. Uh, still today, even at you know age 82, that's everything I do is how can I be useful? Um, fifth, number five, I today I work hard on flexibility. That may not seem like much to you, but believe it or not, on my very first uh, fourth step inventory, the top, the thing at the top of the list was rigidity meaning I wasn't flexible at all. I went this way or this way or this way, compulsive, obsessive, blah, 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 not flexible. Uh, today, I practice what, practice what I call 
crazily, structured flexibility. In other words, I make a plan, but I stay loose in case it has to be changed. But I still make a plan for every day, a food plan, a, a to-do plan, and an attitude plan. And I'll talk about that just a little bit in the 11th step. Six, I gradually moved from anger and resentment into acceptance and forgiveness, from intolerant to being tolerant. You know, live and let live is the slogan. Seven, I gradually let go of the perfectionism, the self-sabotaging perfectionism that ensured that I would always feel not good enough. Perfectionism, of course, is one of the so-called stepchildren of fear. There's a lot of fear derivatives like controlling, uh, um, procrastination, uh, perfectionism. So my perfectionism was driven by this deep fear inside of not being good enough or fear of criticism. That's how I became a compulsive overworker as well as a compulsive overeater. Perhaps the most magical thing was that I moved from unfeeling numbness to being able to feel again. I had built a wall around myself starting about 19 or 20 as I look back to protect myself from being vulnerable. I was her, I had a, a, a romance at about age 19 that totally shattered me, broke my heart. Uh, someone I had been with throughout high school and we went off to college together. And the dream was we were going to do, you know, finish college, have nice jobs, get married, blah, 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 blah. And then she discovered older men. Oh, my. And so uh, I got hurt and I said, never again. And I built that wall around me. And that turned out to be a wall just like my father had around him. I became a stone. I was protecting myself. What happened, and it began in the fifth step, was that wall began to come down and I began to feel again, which meant that I was again making myself vulnerable. I was going to be honest and be who I was. And the feelings began to come back and I was able to feel love again. And even harder for me was that I was able to accept love. Very hard. Another one, I've moved from feeling inadequate and unworthy to uh, I'm okay. I'm valuable. I have something to give. I'm uh, useful, especially to other suffering compulsive overeaters. I am enough. I have enough. I do enough. Number 10, I've moved from the feeling that something was missing in me to knowing that I have everything I need in me to make me a have to to have a happy, joyous, and free life. If I choose to, it is my choice. 11, I've put discipline and structure into my life, starting with the eating, but extending into everything. That's important for me, that discipline and structure. Step eight talks about self-discipline. There's a lot to that, other than just knowing when to keep my mouth shut. Uh, 12, I've moved from pretense and play acting and always on stage. I was always a phony, always seeking strokes, to authentic. You know, that's what the fifth step is about, integrity. Uh, I've moved from cynicism to seeing people as basically good. That was a major shift because I saw the world as basically bad. That got that from my parents. Basically bad. Uh, I've moved from atheism into being able to make a connection with a quiet voice within, which means I'm no longer paralyzed by fear. 
of course, courage is not necessarily the absence of fear. You know, it's doing it anyway. For a long time, it was simply white knuckle courage. Did I hear five minutes? It's four. Okay, gotcha. Um, steps eight and nine, I took full responsibility for what I had done and made amends. I put the past away. I only had about a dozen to make amends to make my first time through uh, the steps in 82 and 83. Most were living amends to my spouse and kids and mother and father and employer. Um, after step eight and nine, I had a new life and a gift. The healing really came. The obsession for the food was lifted. I no longer thought of food when I felt frustrated or anxious or sad. Step 10, so step 10, 11, and 12 are, of course, about holding on to the freedom. So let me quickly go through this. I'll go a couple of minutes over and then I'll stop. Uh, step 10, every morning I inventory my emotional and spiritual condition and I make the next necessary corrections to my thinking. I continue to grow as well as keep the slate clean as I go. No need to accumulate guilt about bad behavior. Notice I said I do an inventory in the morning, uh, not in the evening as the big book suggests. I did that for several years. It didn't work as well for me as putting it in the morning. I don't know why, but for some reason, the morning is better. Um, plus, of course, it, there is the ongoing in inventory, you know, anytime. I sometimes do a brief inventory, sometimes do a lengthy inventory. I did a lengthy one this morning. I looked at 30 different traits uh, at, at, as to where I am in, you know, in my, in my life. Sometimes I'll just say, how am I doing on living in accountability rather than blaming or how am I doing living in faith rather than fear? How am I doing living in hope rather than despair, etc. Um, the point of all this, of course, is to keep my weak points in focus so that I can work on them. In my seventh step prayer, for example, after after the last sentence, I say specifically, God, help me. Please help me today to live in and I'll fill in there whatever it is that I think that I need. So for example, I might say, please help me to live in faith rather than fear and anxiety. Help me to accept the reality of my age, my physical condition, rather than denial or resentment. Step 11 every morning is about 45 minutes for me. Remember, I'm retired now for 30 years, so I have the luxury of taking whatever time I want. I seek to understand God's will for me through prayer and meditation. I have a very structured routine, opening prayer. Then I write down my food plan for the day and a work plan and an attitude plan, believe it or not. I do the inventory I just mentioned. I read some daily reading books, at a minimum, the two OA books, but I have a, I have actually a stack of 19 books on my little reading table there, and I kind of alternate, always the OA, but I also read other program daily reading books. I write down a little bit about how each applies to me, the two that I read. I do a gratitude list every day, every day. I don't think I've missed doing a gratitude list ever, or I must have ever, but not, not over the last 30 plus years. I say the serenity prayer, third step prayer, seventh step prayer, and 11 step prayer. I quickly run through what I call my articles of faith. The major one being, I believe God will give me the strength and courage to accept and deal with whatever life brings especially the chronic pain and disability that I will have for the rest of my life. He's always with me, in me, beside me, around me, ready to help me on my journey, even carry me if need be. 
I then close with some uh, affirmations. I found out a long time ago I can change how I feel by changing the sentences going through my head. You know, fighting depression my whole life. I found that I can do, I can change it. I can feel better by simply changing the sentences going through my head. And that's what affirmations are for me. Uh, when I first came in, I was handed the little just for the day card. And I memorized those and I still say those. 40 years later, I'm still saying just for today, I'll get through this day, et cetera. And I say those every morning. And of course, being who I am, I add a few. I add about six to the, to the nine that are there. For years, I was able to do a quiet meditation at the end of this morning process. But once the chronic pain and neuropathy have taken over my body, uh, I can never quite get the brain and the body quieted down like I used to be to be able to really empty out for a Zen type of meditation. It's as if the adrenaline never, never stops running. So 12 obviously is about spiritual awakening and carrying the message and practicing these principles. And I work very hard on doing all of those things. Since I retired, I'm basically doing service for OA full time. So that's since 97, right? So however many years that is. Um, how can somebody whose life was saved not want to try to help other people who have the same problem? I found the solution. How can I not pay it forward? How can I not try to help other people whose lives have been ruined or perhaps almost taken because of this damn disease? So that's the story of my life. Um, that's kind of many examples of the recovery process. The fact is, uh, the 12-step process is a transformation process, a healing process. It's a healing process. Didn't get that in the beginning because healing brings to word that terrible word that bothers me called G-O-D. Uh, believe it or not, I actually sponsor a minister, a Christian minister at this point. And uh, he keeps saying, Don, you argue with yourself too much. Give it up. Give it up. You really believe you know that, don't you, Don? And I say, okay, okay, I guess I do. Higher power is bigger than me. It's there. I just have to connect. And so uh, my bottom line is the program works if I work it. And it's a remarkable, remarkable miracle. So thank you very much, Rita, for asking me to come and share a little bit of my life with you guys. Thanks. Well, Don, thank you so much. What a miracle you are. And I'm just going to read a little excerpt from the AA Big Book for um, after Don's story. It's on page 317, and it's called My Chance to Live. As I began to take the steps of recovery, my role in the pitiful condition of my life became clear. If asked what the two most important things in recovery are, I would have to say willingness and action. When I am willing to do the right thing, I am rewarded with an inner peace no amount of liquor could ever provide. When I am unwilling to do the right thing, I become restless, irritable, and discontent. It's always my choice. Through the 12 steps, I've been granted the gift of choice. I am no longer at the mercy of a disease. It tells me the only answer is to drink. If willingness is a key to unlock the gates of hell, it is action that opens those doors so that we, we may walk freely among the living.